0: I'm ready. One, three, five. Um, do, 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 do you are listening to? You are listening to? You are listening to? Five, four. You are listening to from so brighty to recovery. <sighs> Already messed that up. You are listening to from so brighty to recovery with Jesse Mogul. Let's get to the show. All right. When there's nobody on camera with me, I have this whole warm-up thing I do. I will, I will spare you from it. <laughs> me, 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 me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. You, you are listening thing. to, you are listening to, you are listening to From brighty to Recovery with Jesse Mogul. Let's get to the show. Five, four, three, two, one. You are listening to From brighty to Recovery with Jesse Mogul. Let's get to the show. welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery, and I have an excellent show for you. And I know, I know, I literally say that every single week. And in fact, the last time I had a guest on this show, that's how I introd the show. By telling you it was fantastic. By telling you, I know that I say that every single time. But this one really is monumental. I don't just bring anybody on the show. I think you all know that. For the most part, this is the Jesse Mogul Driven From So Brighty to Recovery podcast. But there are those Occasions when people reach out to me that I feel immediately compelled to get on a phone call with, learn more about, go actually listen to their show, which is not something I tend to do. You know me, I like to stick to the podcasts I listen to, and I'm absolutely listening to mine more often than not. But this one was completely different. There is something about Caitlin when I met her that said, I have to go and listen to what she talks about. I have to get a part of that energy. We had an amazing conversation when we first met, and we have been looking forward to having her on the show. Every since then. So I'm not going to sit here and bring out a long, drawn-out rambling of what the last few episodes have been about. I want to get straight into this one. So let's introduce you to Caitlin Englert. She's a licensed social worker and confidence coach. She's also been in recovery for 12 years, and that's going to be a great story when we get into it. And she's like us, like the rest of us who listen to this show. She's constantly wanting to learn more about herself. She found recovery when she was 20 years old. Now, for those of you who know I have the college Success Habits Podcast. One of the reasons I started that show was to get to the middle school, high school, college year students so that perhaps they would not get themselves into addiction, and then have to find themselves at 40 years old entering recovery. Caitlin actually stepped into sobriety and recovery at 20. At 20 years old, I was such a numbskull, I never could have imagined doing what she's done. She's led an amazing professional career as a social worker. She's a substance abuse counselor. She helps other people in their path of recovery. She also has her own podcast. We're going to get into that when she gets on the show. Without any further ado, welcome to the show, Caitlin. How are you today?
1: Hey, Jesse, thanks so much for having me. And I am actually fantastic today. And I mean that genuinely, not just the, hey, I'm great in in passing. You know, I really am great today. So thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, You know, I agree. I have a lot of energy on the mornings I wake up knowing that I'm going to get on the mic with somebody else. There's something about sharing stories and being vulnerable on the microphone that matters to me. So I really do appreciate you being here and being ready to open up and share with my audience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, my life is a very, it's very, uh, imbalanced right now and with kids and the job and the, The marriage and just a lot of moving parts. And so, you know, there's days where I'm like, oh, can I keep doing this? Is this sustainable? And going off what you just said, yes, I have to, right? Because my purpose is here and it really does energize me to serve other people and to also just meet other people that are like-minded.
0: Well, is that one of the reasons you started the Healthy Mind Happy Life podcast? You know, that's how obviously you found me through my podcast. And that's when I went off and listened to your podcast. Was that one of the reasons that you started this being in recovery, having so many things going on in your life, knowing that you had tools to help people experience the fulfilling life you were experiencing and the desire to share that with them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I entered into recovery, the, the thing was you share your experience, strength, and hope. So that's how I learned to connect with other people and relate to other people and help other people is by sharing my experience. And so throughout my career, that was actually uh limited because in the job I was in previously, we weren't allowed to do that. We were told you don't share about yourself or if you do it's very very limited it's just like little tidbits and so i always felt like i was kind of boxed in and very restricted i wasn't allowed to tell my clients i was in recovery even though i worked in substance abuse <laughs> and so after taking a few years off and and starting my own business again that was limited cuz i was still doing the part time kid thing at home and so i started brainstorming how can i get more reach, right? How can I get that message out there that doesn't require, well, I guess podcasting does, but doesn't require as much of my time as sitting down for an hour one-to-one with clients. Mm -hmm. So I get the best of both worlds. I get to meet with clients, but I also get to share the message on the podcast.
0: I do really believe that podcasts are this gigantic megaphone where we have an opportunity to touch everybody in the world if they're able to find us. I want to go down this little side road that you started. Not, We don't have to go down it too long, but I am very curious because I'm a certified recovery support specialist. Part of the training Within the CRSS program is that we are peers. We are meant to to share our lived experiences, let people know what we've gone through, how we've managed our way into sobriety, and then how we've thrived in recovery. You actually had a job that specifically told you not to share that story. Uh, What was that experience like? basically having a governor on your mouth saying there, there's a limit to what you're allowed to tell these people about your life, even though your lived experience could literally be that hope that they were looking for all along.
1: Yeah, it's, it's two-sided for me. So I started off as a peer recovery coach, and then I went on to get my bachelor's degree in substance abuse counseling. And one of the things that they said was, it's about, not about you, it's about the client. So at the time, that was extremely hard for me because I only knew how to help people through self-relating and sharing my experience. So it was, looking back, it was actually a really good skill because I learned how to make it about other people and not always make it about myself. And I had to learn that to be the therapist I am today. But then as I continued to grow as a therapist. It was incredibly hard because I had clients coming to me, asking me, are you in recovery or saying things like, you don't get it. You're not in recovery. And, you know, they're smart enough. <laughs> they figure it out by the way I talk, I would say things or I would talk or I would carry myself, you know, when someone's in recovery, by the way, the, the language they use and mm-hmm. the way they talk. So they started to pick up on it. And I didn't really say yes. And I didn't really say no, but it started to become a problem because like I said before, it felt very boxed in and there is a time and place for it. It is very beneficial to people to know that you're in recovery, you know, to know that you've been where they are, that you've been in their seat. There's something extremely powerful about that.
0: There is. I agree with you as far as the the learned skill of asking questions, listening, actively listening to what the other person says and not consistently seeking to interject your story into what they're trying to tell you. Cause I have absolutely learned through the CRSS program that my training as a, you know, as a, as a peer recovery support specialist is benefiting from all the training I took in order to become good at being journalistic, journalistic and doing these things on the podcast, like knowing when to share and when not. And I think that the fact that you did get to learn that skill there, even though it was boxing you in has been able to help, with what you're doing now, as far as actively listening and knowing just the right time to slide in one of your little nuggets of wisdom that could be the aha moment they were listening for.
1: Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot of that. Like, Hey, this is how you can be an active listener. Hey, ask these questions instead of self relating. It was, no, you don't do this. <laughs> it was very rigid. Right. <laughs> and like I said, looking back, it was extremely helpful to my growth as an individual and as a professional. But eventually, you get to a point in your career where that's just no longer, it just didn't fit me anymore. You know, I needed to be able to be who I am in this role without all these limitations.
0: Well, then let me do something that you weren't allowed to do back then. And let's talk about your road to sobriety and recovery because deciding at 20 years old that this is it, I'm ready to make this drastic change. I mean, at 20, I was just in the height of my LSD cocaine use. I could not even have imagined at that stage to do what you did. When you look back at the, where you were at when 20 years old hit and you decided to make this choice, walk us through what your life was like leading up to that day. And I think there's even a really amazing story you can share about the relapse that you had and resetting your date.
1: Yeah. So I'm not a big person on sharing my whole addiction story, right? Because it's, yes, it's relevant, but it's not really relevant. So I didn't, I guess it is a choice to get clean, but I didn't really feel like I had a choice at the time. I had been an outpatient for over six months. And I remember my first day in outpatient. I didn't know anything about it. I was really nervous. And I was in a young adult group because I was only 19 at the time. And so I was really nervous. And I remember thinking, oh my, I don't know why I'm here. I'm not like these people. They're shooting up and they're doing all these things. I don't no, this isn't for me. So I judged everyone in the room. And so as time went on, I started to develop friendships with these people. And we started using together. We would go on weekends and use together. It was very toxic and very unhealthy. We started using together at someone's house and we were just being sneaky and like passing off urine screens, whoever was clean that week. It was just very toxic situation. And eventually it led to, um, never shot heroin, but using heroin. And that was really when I started to say to myself, like, what are you doing? You, you said you would never do this. You made this promise to yourself and now you're doing it. The thing you said you would never do. So the road started to uh, thicken, if you will, like it was just becoming very hairy. And my counselor came to me. And said, you know, you either need to go to inpatient or you can't be here anymore. And that wasn't even the choice. And and once I processed it, the choice was I was actually going to either go to jail or go to inpatient because I was also stealing and uh, there was a lot of arrests. I wasn't very good criminal. We'll just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Always got caught. And my dad always bailed me out. And so I never really had those consequences. And and so there was that ultimatum. And I just remember, the, even the whole time I was using, the, when I was in treatment, there was this pull inside of me, like my conscience was telling me, this isn't, you're not made for this. You are not made for this. But there was this other part of me that couldn't stop, that just obsessed in about it all the time and just couldn't stop and couldn't let go of my friends and the lifestyle and the way I felt when I was doing it. And I didn't know what this would entail going to inpatient. I had no idea. I just thought I was going to go and learn how not to use Oxy. But wow, that was an awakening when I went to inpatient for 30 days. I live in New York. So I went somewhere here in Western New York. And when I arrived, it was really intimidating. I didn't feel like I belonged again. You know, there was all these other people there that I was judging and didn't feel like I fit in. I think the blessing was there was a new unit that was built in this building. So it was brand spanking new and I had been placed on this unit and it was during Christmas time. So this was the other really difficult part was I wasn't going to be with my family for Christmas or any of the holidays. And I had that weighing on my shoulders, but when I walked in, it was decorated. It just felt very cozy and like home. Everyone was really, really nice. And so I just started to say, you know what, I'm going to see how this goes. You know, what's, what's the worst that can happen? I can always go back to using, I can do 30 days. Like I just started to have that conversation with myself. And so I just, you know, day by day just kept trucking along i finished my 30 days and there was something that shifted for me when i was there and i had a counselor actually who did share his experience that's what he did in our groups he always shared his experience and it was so powerful and i just remember thinking like if he can do this i can do this and there were a lot of situations you know when you get clean you lose one thing you start looking for another So I got wrapped up in drama and all that crap that happens. And you start looking outside yourself. So I got involved in all of that, which is very normal. And he helped me in every one of those situations. Like he didn't just tell me, you know, knock it off. He actually like cared and was like, Caitlin, you, you have this right. Like, and and I don't know if this was the right thing for him to say, but he was like, they're going to be back. Like, so-and-so is going to be back, right? They're not, he, they're just doing their time here, but there's something different in you. Like, I know that you want this. And just because he said that, uh, he said that a couple of times to me, but it made me believe in myself, right? I was like, okay, there, yes, yes. Okay. I, I can do this. I got to get through one more day. And so because of him, you know, I, I really do believe that, um, you know, he was a power greater than myself during that time. And I got through the 30 days and I didn't know what that was going to look like when I got out. And I went right, you know, back to the relationship that I was in, but I also went to a meeting that night when I got out. So we drove four hours home. I went right to a meeting and I introduced myself like they told me to. I was very compliant. I was so scared of going to jail or going back to that life that the fear was motivating me. And, and the other part of this was, it was kind of like a new high Right, I was like, what is this fun, exciting thing of recovery? It was like, I'm learning all these new things and these new concepts. And it felt fun, which I know probably a lot of people don't say, but it did. So it was kind of like this high that I had and I just kept riding it. So I did what I was told. I did 90 meetings in 90 days. I did the uh raised my hand at the first meeting introduced myself said I was new and people came over to me and uh, I, at first I actually had my own plan I said well I'm going to come to meetings like twice a week this is what I said in the meeting I'm going to come like twice a week cuz I'm in college and I have this crazy schedule and they all laughed at me and they came up to me after the meeting like well we really suggest you do 90 and 90 and I was like oh I don't know if I can do that I'm in treatment and they were like well if you, if you want, if you want to return at the end of 90 days, we'll give it back to you. And so I just did what I was told, honestly. And um, so I kept moving forward and I was in college, living at college and there was a big event at this college. So it's called Brock the Poor. It's this big event that they have like a carnival and food. It's basically just a booze fest. And I just felt left out, you know, being a 20 year old at college, not drinking, that's it it just, you don't feel a part of. And, and so I remember everyone's talking about it and being in that environment. I just fell into that peer influence, like, yep, I'm going to do this. And I had a friend who who's actually my husband now, but had a friend saying, please don't do this. Please don't do it. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And he's like, please, I I can't stop you, but I'm begging you don't do this. And I was, I'm doing it. And I did. And it was a shit show. It was my roommate (laughs) and I got in a huge fight and it was a disaster. I drove drunk. I went off with and messed around with a boy. I didn't know. I drove to my mom's because we got in this fight and it was just when I woke up in the morning. I had this realization that even if drinking is the problem, whether it is or it isn't, it's the decisions that I make under the influence,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Yeah. Like I may be able to control my drinking, I may be able to go out and party, but look at all these bad decisions. I drove drunk to my mom's on three felonies. I had three felonies I was going to court for. And and you know i I messed around with this guy that I didn't know, and then I got in a fight with my roommate who I'd never gotten in a fight with, so there was like all these things that unfolded that were big epiphanies for me. But then the reality set in of now I need to be honest with my sponsor, and I didn't want to because I knew she was going to say, "Well, you know you have to change your clean date." so I actually lied and didn't tell anyone except that one person for. I don't know, a month or two months. And then I finally just decided like I couldn't live in secrecy anymore. And so I fessed up, I was honest about it. And she said, you know, you have to change your clean date and my stomach, I could feel it, it hurt. I was like, no, please don't make me change my clean date. And she's like, you do. And so it was a big blow to my ego. That's all it was, a blow to my ego. And, um, from then on, you know, it's, it's been growth from there no more relapses, but it's, that was a big um, moment. And I never wanted to feel that again.
0: So to be clear, it was just this one night of lapse. It wasn't like you went full on back to Oxy. It wasn't like you did this for multiple weeks or months. It was just one night of decision-making that you, that obviously things went super sideways, but it was just one night. And then you were right back into your game. Right. Yeah. You know, know, I commend you for realizing after one night, we're good here, right? We talk about on my show, the difference between lapse and relapse. And this is all over the internet. It wasn't like I invented this terminology, but certainly I did enough research to be able to back it up with some validity when I say it, that relapse is going full steam back into your old life, which would generally take some people at least more than one day to accomplish. It would take weeks to go back to... back to you know, eight balls a day and, and handles, but it's that one lapse. It's that one night where somebody makes the decision in that moment. Will I continue to think I can corral this beast or I learn from my transgressions of just one evening and say no more. And I really want to commend you for having that lapse and occur. And you saying, Whoa, that was just the first day back. Imagine what day 17 would be like and putting the brakes on that moving forward, even though you had to, change your sober date, I think, actually, I won't even assume, I will ask, how monumentally strengthening was that lapse for you? Did I mean, I I have to assume there was a shifting of your mind that occurred where you were like, no way, I don't ever need to go back there again, because at least you tasted it and realized it was a disgusting pill to have to swallow.
1: Yeah, my clean date is extremely important to me. Some people don't find it that important to me. It is it is like the day I, it, it's just, it holds so much value in my mm-hmm. life.
0: It was the day yeah. I was born uh, to me. To me, it's my birthday, January, yeah. January 13th of 2017. Yours is May 7th, 12 years ago. So what, what would that be? 2000... Uh, wait, it was
1: 2011.
0: 2011. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely concur. I, I, I understand the riding the pink cloud when you first get into it. And I say I still ride the pink cloud often. I I because of my neuro linguistic training, I actually set anchors at certain points in my life that can rejuvenate my enthusiasm for my recovery, as well as very easily being able to feel the pain somebody else is in whenever I hear about a hangover they're going through and i don't mean like i take on their pain like i'm an empath okay case in point i'm watching a tv show called the tourist on hbo or something not important what is important is that two (laughs) main characters got super drunk on martinis in one of the episodes and the next morning they wake up and one of them's like i'm in so much pain i feel like if i try to move i'm just gonna die and in that moment i can Go back to one of my last hangovers before I got sober and be like, "Yep, I know, I know exactly what they're trying to assimilate through this show for me to feel," and I can by being able to do that, I I I can very easily touch back to what that pain was like and know I don't ever want to feel that pain again.
1: Oh yeah, my ego hurt so bad that I had to be honest about that because prior to that was December fourteenth, two thousand ten. Right, so I had to essentially, instead of saying I had six months clean, I had to say I have one month clean. Mm -hmm. And I took a lot of pride in being able to get those key tags and say how much clean time I had. My ego really liked it. So that was the hardest thing for me. But I guess what I will say is the thing I always come back to is asking myself this, is it worth the risk? Right. Is it worth risking to find out? Is it mm-hmm. worth risking to find out, will this road lead to anything if I pick it back up? Whatever that might be. Is it worth it? I, I maybe, maybe <sighs> not. And I don't want to get out of something because I know how hard it was to get out of it the first time. I don't want to have, that was a lot of energy to get out ton, of that. I don't know energy. if I have it in me again. So why risk it? That's always what I come back to. And the, you know, I remember when I was about seven years clean. I was having some postpartum depression and stuff like that and just really lost. I didn't have my career. And I remember I was like close, like literally steps away from drinking. And I survived it, I made it through, but it was very, very, very difficult. There was something in me that just wanted to say, screw it, just go do it. And actually my husband and I were on vacation Now I had already been having these thoughts, but we were on vacation and we happened to be with another couple who was in recovery. And so I remember, I just felt like I was suffering through this pain and she and my husband, you know, just continuing to talk about it day by day, asking myself that question, is it worth the risk? And day by day, you know, I made it through and and eventually the clouds started to clear but it was, it's hard, you know, and you never know when it's going to creep in. It could be two years, seven years, 12 years, wherever you are.
0: Yeah. I don't ever claim to be impervious to the cravings and to the yearning. You know, I've uh, stood across from an airport bar and watched people drink and daydreamed about being able to go over there and drink. I've walked in on accident. Like, you know, you think you go into like a bathroom stall and somebody doesn't lock it. So you go in and like the door hits them and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, I did that one time and the person had lines on the little toilet paper thing. I'm like, oh, so sorry. And walked away, left the bathroom, acted like I didn't see anything. But I remember my brain even being like, I could get drugs right now. I could, I could be doing cocaine in five minutes and like working my way through that and just like in my show, I say, see, playing it through to the credits. What happens at the end of that? Sure, I get a bump or sure, I do a shot. For some people, it is it is whatever it is. For me, it turns back into my old lifestyle. And the imagery you put into my head, well, you didn't put it in there, but my brain brought up when you said, do I really want to risk it? It's like somebody saying, look, there's a bunch of rattlesnakes in this field There's a 50-50 chance if you run through it, you'll be good to go. And somebody might be like, awesome, let's feel that exhilaration. And I'm like, you know what? I think I'll just walk around the field. That, to me, would be going back to cocaine and liquor. Sure, I might make it through the field unscathed, but there's a better chance that I'm going to get bit by one rattlesnake, and then they're all going to hear me screaming, and they're all going to run for a little taste of Jesse. And that's how I play it through to the credits and remind myself, I've, I've tried to fight that bull before, and I've lost every time
1: you know what it is? I think it's more about the, the chase. Like I get more of a high off the chase, like the mm-hmm. thought of doing it by watching those people in the airport, I get a high off just thinking about what that would be like more than I probably would actually doing it because actually doing it, all that leaves you with is guilt and shame. remorse. and remorse.
0: Shame.
1: So it is, so it's not actually the act of doing it. I actually don't think I would enjoy it it's the chase of doing it. And I'm like that with other areas of my life, right? When you put down one thing, it ma- starts manifesting in other areas. Yeah. And throughout my recovery, it has, right? I like to think of my recovery in thirds. And the first third, I, I really believe it's all about finding your footing, your foundation. It's about learning what sobriety, what recovery is and like your place in the world. And, and I learned a lot in that time period. I gambled, I self-harmed, I found a new hobby of couponing. It was really (laughs) weird. Like I had a whole (laughs) binder of all these coupons and it was like a high going to the store and trying to get discounts on it. And so it just kept manifesting into all these other areas, relationships, right? So,
0: what kept... an interesting cross addiction, by the way, couponing. I just of all the cross addictions I've heard before, I've got to commend There's you. There's one on... for the books, right? I'm like, I'm like, so your cross addiction was saving fifty cents off of a can of tuna. Okay, I commend you. <laughs> right,
1: it's the high. It's the high. That's again, it's the chase.
0: It is the chase, right? and then it's
1: food, and then it's it just kept becoming something else all the time. And so those first, well, so I'm, I have 12 years. So if you think of it in thirds, that would be my first four years. It really was about that, just about trying to figure out my behaviors and looking at all of that, becoming aware of it. And it was painful. It was really hard. I had to take a hard look at these things. And people would call me out on it people from the rooms, good friends and treatment, what have you. And it was, My, oh, my ego again, did not like that, but I listened, I didn't deflect, I didn't get defensive. I took what I needed and I left the rest and a lot of it I needed because I needed to be checked, right? I remember I would get up and leave meetings to smoke and I came back into a meeting once and some guy was sharing and he said, if you're going to share, don't get up and leave a meeting and then come back in because you missed the message. And I'm like, this guy, he's talking about me, like what an, you know, a-hole. And then later on, I thought about him, like, he's right. He's right. I shared and asked for suggestions. And then I left the meeting to go smoke a cigarette. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: I needed those, those uh, people to check, keep me in check. And i listened. I always had my ears open listening. And so those first four years was really about like finding my stability and, my, I would say right around the two, between the two and three year mark is when I was finishing college, my bachelor's degree. And I ran into a problem. The problem was that I was entering into an internship into the field of chemical dependency. I was finishing up my counseling degree and they came to me and they said, we don't know if we can get you a placement. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, there's concern about your, your clean time. I said, I have two years. What's the concern? Well, you know, people get into the field and they relapse and we just, you know, we can't have that. And I'm like, I go to meetings every single day. I go to treatment. I'm a peer recovery coach now. And I've advocated for myself. And I think that I've, I have a very solid recovery. Like I had to pitch myself to these people. And meanwhile, the girl next to me in class is drinking, you know, cause that's like a cool thing to do in college has come to mm-hmm. class drunk.
0: I know I, that's how I got straight C's. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so I remember I had to then go above this guy, the chair of the department and go to the director. And it was, it was a big thing, but I just remember being, it was empowering to advocate for myself, but it also made me very angry that I felt that I was being discriminated against because of my recovery.
0: Well, and it's interesting when we discussed this before the mic went hot, how other people's limiting beliefs, the fears of what they think are, what we're capable of, what our limitations might be based on perhaps And I believe a lot of it is internal projections of what they think they might be capable of. Therefore, they're going to project that upon you and say, well, we put you out there at two years. What happens if blank, blank, blank? I'm like, yeah, but there's other people sitting around me who aren't even trying to do what I'm doing, who are showing up to class drunk, who are doing things that are clearly against the rules, let alone outside the bounds of moral ethics and, and, you know, clear, decent behavior. What was that like for you to journey through that? And at least have, I mean, obviously, as you worked your way up the ladder, somebody said, I believe in you. Just like when you talked about your therapist uh, believing in you saying, look, these other people might come back, but I believe that you've got this. It sounds like there was a couple key people along your journey who were there to say, we got your back. We got your six. What was that like for you to experience some people really step up for you and believe in you?
1: Well, in that scenario, I don't feel like anybody was. Um, I, I guess they maybe they did in some regard because I was able to get an internship, but I had to really, really push. And I felt alone in that situation. Okay. There was one professor that had my back and she agreed with everything I was saying. And so there, I had her But they they were still like the director in the chair were still like, oh, I don't know. They talked to the place uh, that I was supposed to get the internship at. And they were like, you know what, let's come in, have her come in and we'll meet with her. So I went in and I remember meeting with my hopefully to be my supervisor and then her supervisor, the manager of the clinic. And I remember the manager was just very intense. And I was, you know, this 21-year-old female. I was really timid and scared. And she was just like, we will not allow this relapse. We uh, expect, you know, A, B, and C from you. And you are not allowed to share about your recovery. That that was in that meeting. We are not allowed to share about your recovery. And we don't tell clients that. You keep that to yourself. And I was just like, yes, ma'am. Okay, ma'am. And I just wanted the internship so bad. I just complied with whatever they said. And so I ended up getting the internship and I had an amazing supervisor. Amazing. Like she really is responsible for the therapist that I am today. She gave me so many things during those, it was about five months, those five months um, that really helped me grow as an individual and as a professional.
0: Uh, you know, the, the. Against the machine, rage against the rules. Version of Jesse was hearing you say compliant a couple times. Been like, no, you look that woman in the eye and you say, F you, I'm going to tell them about my recovery. I don't need this. You don't believe in me. I'll go find someplace that does. And then you bring in this part where it's like, oh, well, but wait, I learned so much. I grew so much. And so the part of me who's like the rule follower says, okay, little, you know, imagine I got little jesse's on the corner, right? We got one of them over here that's red who wants to rage against the machine. The other one that says, no, be compliant. And follow the rules. And I really want to stress this for the listeners that yes, there was a level of compliance that more than likely went against what you were internally feeling. But by just quieting that down for a moment saying, okay, I really want this internship. What do I have to do in order to achieve this position here? It ultimately benefited you so much throughout your career in life, that that little bit of sort of swallowing of the pride, right? We talk about on the show, humility, gratitude, and integrity, right? Doing what is right when no one's looking, being humbled by who we are in life and also having gratitude for what we are offered and what we've achieved. You stepped into all of those. You did the compliant thing, grew a tremendous amount, and look what you've turned it into now. You live in a world where you don't have to be compliant about somebody else's wishes. You're able to run your business and your coaching the way that you decide you want to. So uh, having heard me say all that, like what, I don't know, what did I just evoke in that? Because for me, I felt like, wow, that's a really great point. She was compliant to a point and it was able to achieve so much just by going with the flow and seeing where it took her. And it looks like it took you in an amazing direction.
1: I think what it is, Jesse, is flexible thinking, right? Being able to, I advocated for myself and I didn't feel confident, I tell people all the time as a confidence coach, it's not always about feeling a certain way. It's about action. And I was so scared every time I went into those meetings, but I knew kind of what your reaction was like, this wasn't okay. And so I did push, I did advocate for myself, but I also couldn't go in with that mindset or I would have lost my whole career. So I had to have that flexibility of, okay, I've advocated, I've said my piece, I also need to be flexible over here in in this department.
0: All right. For those of you all who are paying attention and keeping score. So she actually just mentioned, uh, my sixth principle in my college success book, which is exercising flexibility and number five, which is taking action. And that's why you guys aren't watching this on camera. We're videotaping this because we're on zoom. But when, when Caitlin says really awesome things, I'm over here pumping my fist because it's (laughs) like, she's, she's saying things y'all have heard me talk about. And one of the reasons I love bringing other people on the show is for you realize again, I'm not cherry picking her. I didn't go listen to 50 of her episodes and be like, I'm going to make sure she says these four things. But I listened enough to know that the message she was going to share with you was very much going to be in line with what we're talking about on this show. And the fact that you're talking about taking action, about being flexible, advocating for yourself, but also being humble enough to know that sometimes you just say, okay, where could this take me? And congratulations for that. Because like you've said, what you learned there has turned you into this amazing coach who knows how to actively listen and picks a time and place to share her lived experiences for maximum effect.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and so going back to like the three phases, right? The That was really my first phase And then my let's list these
0: out real fast. Pardon the interruption. So we, I have these in my show notes y'all, but I want to make sure that if you're a lot of my listeners take notes, I want to make sure they can take notes really well with this one. So first phase for her is navigating a life in sobriety and figuring out what that's going to look for her. Now, please with phase two, make sure you guys got your pin in the pad, get in the lab guys.
1: Phase two is about beginning to unlayer. You start that process. And what I mean by that is unlayering parts about yourself right so it's not just about how do i not use drugs because that's first phase i've learned to I, i know i can live life now without drugs i got that down but now the second part is okay well what do i what do i do with this and it's about building a life right and unlayering parts about who we are, and so I started to build that life. Right, I got the degree, I I married the the guy, I started having kids, but with all of that comes this unlayering piece. Um, at least for me, right? I I'm not an avoider, and so like I see things, you know, obviously because that's what I do for a living. But like I can see things and I observe things, and so I I couldn't ignore things that were happening. Right, you start having kids they reflect things back to you very intensely Mm -hmm. that you can't avoid. So that was happening. I had some stuff going on in my marriage that was happening. And I remember the first part of the second phase being kind of, again, a high because it was like the marriage, the career, the baby. It was like all fun and games. And then reality hit about halfway through where I just had rode this high of like climbing, climbing, climbing but now life was just kind of plateauing right and there i didn't really have anything to necessarily work towards i was just you know i was going to work every day had the kid and and so on but finished my masters degree and got married and i was just kind of like what what's next what's next and that's when i started to really realize that's all you've done all you do is search for more 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 things you're never content with just being and mm-hmm. So I started that journey, and that's what I mean by unlayering. I started to to peel those layers back and really start looking at that. And yes, self-help meetings helped me with that, but I really had to take it to another level and start going to therapy and start doing my own internal work, you know, journaling and stuff like that to really just discover parts of myself. Not fully there yet. I'm still not fully there, but, you know, bits and pieces. And so... It was a really painful time, you know, good times, but also painful realization of you've been doing this your whole life, just chasing, chasing, and never feeling like you're doing enough and that you're never good enough. So I started to look at my self-worth and, and the thing where I get self-worth from, right? Like my, I was talking about my ego earlier, and that's a piece that I started looking at too. Like my ego needed validation from clients. It needed validation from my husband, from, from my family, from my friends to say like, you're good enough, Caitlin, you know what you're doing. You're a good therapist. You're a good wife. You're a good, this a uh, good mom. And if I didn't get that, I just would fall apart without it. Or if I didn't have something to work towards, I just felt kind of, I don't like this word, but crazy, right? I just kind of felt lost and just all over the place and scattered And I knew I couldn't keep living like that. And during this phase is really also when the relapse or not relapse, the wanting to relapse happened, the really, it was a dark place, right? Going, starting to unlayer isn't always fun. It's needed, but it's not always fun. And I'm just so grateful that I had a really strong foundation of recovery because that's what carried me through. Because once you start unlayering these parts about yourself, it's hard to sit with self. Mm -hmm. That's why I've been avoiding it for X amount of years, right? Why I've been working on all these achievements and ego validation and all of these things, because it allowed me to avoid who I am.
0: Whenever we talk about unlayering, it makes me think of an onion, how the onion has that protective coating. And if you start to break off the layers, it starts to stink a little bit more, makes your eyes water a lot more. But if you take off some of the layers and you set it on the cabinet, it actually sort of grows another protective layer around it and it stinks a little bit less. It burns the eyes a little bit less. And then you can take off another layer and it's back to burning and back to stinking. Uh, And I feel like that's how it's been for Jesse. Each time I take off a layer, I'm not necessarily thrilled with what's underneath it but I know that the more I access that part of me, the more I'm able to heal those versions of me. And you're right. There is this chasing. I still feel like I'm in that version, right? Only at six years now. And you mentioned, you're you're still not all the way there. I don't know if we ever achieve it. I think we've all taken the blue pill. We've decided that we're going to dive inward and, and look at all of our cracks and crevices and shine the lights on our shadows. And I look forward to all of the shadows coming up, even if they do stink and taste bitter, and at the same time, realizing that some of that's not going to be exciting for me to have to unravel, and there is that chasing right of the next podcast episode, the next knowledge in the book, the next client, the next speaking gig. Um, there's that, and then I then I asked myself, and so I'd love for your opinion on this. A lot of people when they have a business, that's just what they do. They're chasing the next gig, they're chasing the next client, they're chasing the next vacation, and that's just normal way of life. But as those of us in sobriety and recovery, I think we decided a long time ago to look at our lives underneath a microscope and make sure that that the way we're behaving is actually healthy for us long-term. Do you, am I sparking anything in you? What's your side of that?
1: Well, first I wanna comment on the onion analogy. I've heard the onion analogy of like peeling back the layers but never in detail like that and I really like it. (laughs) Thank So I just wanted to say that. Um, But yes, I still find myself doing those things sometimes. But I catch myself and I can pull myself back from it or just acknowledge that that's what's happening and check in with myself of like, why are you doing this? What is your intention? I have better ways of checking in with myself instead of just steamrolling through it like I used to and ignoring it. I can't ignore it as much anymore because I do still do that right with business and stuff. And I agree. I started my business three years ago. and that the whole first year, that's what it was about, right? I didn't, I wasn't present with my kids. I didn't, like, I just wanted to go full steam ahead, business, get all the clients, do all the things. And when it wasn't happening the way I wanted it to happen, I would just fall apart and feel like a failure again, right? It came back to that. Um, And even since then, right? I don't, I don't Uh, yes, it still comes up, but again, I keep myself in check in a different way. And I always am like checking in with myself, but it isn't perfect. Mm -hmm. These things are so rooted that they do come up, but it's not like it used to be, right? You can't unsee what you've seen. And I, I saw all these things about myself over the years. And so I can't really run from them anymore. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're there. So it's like, okay, well, if they're there, I might as well find ways to help myself instead of living in it because i also i don't like living it. i don't like how i feel when i when i get trapped in that in the behaviors or the chase or any of that i don't like how i feel afterwards
0: yeah we can have the blinders on like you know like we see everything we're like okay I'm i'm starting to get more aware we can put on those horse blinders like they do at the kentucky derby but we're not horses. We realize there's still, the whole world still exists out there. Horses put those on so that they're just focused on running on the track. And we could try to do that to ourselves, but our unconscious mind and subconscious, the whole deal, even the conscious is like, eh, you can try to blind it, but we know what's right over the wall. Um, and we have, right? We are the Pavlov's dog. We have rung the bell. We we know that it's on the other side. We know that there's a healed version of ourselves out there. The, tooth is, the toothpaste has been squeezed out of the tube. We can't go back to the, blind viewpoints we had about our lives that were really taking us down the wrong path in addiction, now we're in sobriety and recovery. And regardless of whether we want to or not, uh, change is going to happen. So I say, might as well take the wheel of that change. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And so my third phase, right, has been about changing or challenging family belief systems and self. So my I would say the first part of my third third was really about looking at my family system and who I am in that family system and the values and beliefs that I've adopted because of our families or because of my family. And that was really hard because I'm close with my family and it felt like a betrayal to challenge them and to look at it differently and they didn't understand it. Right? I had to set boundaries, I had to have really hard conversations. And I just had to process a lot myself and it felt like such a betrayal to my family. I had to do that though. I had to break away from certain things that had been happening because it wasn't healthy for me anymore. It was starting to hurt me and my kids. So I had to start looking at that. And because of that, that led to another layer, right? A deeper layer in the onion. And I'm still doing that work, and I agree with you, I don't think we ever arrive anywhere. There's never a destination. it's there's little pit stops along the way in life that you stop if you're on a river, right you stop, you take a break, you hang out for a while, but then you get back on the river and
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I've accepted that i that's a big realization that I've had in the last couple of years is like that's okay like i i'm always I've always been about destination. You go through grad school, you get the degree, right? You go through a pregnancy, you get the baby, whatever it
0: is. (laughs) There are clear defined end goals with some of the things that we take on in life, aren't there?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was always chasing that destination and never enjoying the journey. And everyone always says that is very cliche, but I never really understood it or embodied it until the last couple of years. And you know, I still stray from that, but I have a better understanding of like, okay, right now I'm on the river right now I'm taking a pit stop. And I'm, I have a better. I've learned how to have a internal rhythm with myself, right? Like I can push, I can pull, I can check in with myself, can do this dance of, and that to me is that that's what it is, right? That's what I've I've come to realize is that's what it's about. It's just mm-hmm. learning your rhythm and checking in with yourself. It's never about the destination. It's about who you become and and how you treat yourself along the way. And that's what the third third has been about for me is again those family belief systems and also just about who I am in this world and more layers about myself and I'm still kind of in the thick of that right now. Yeah. I still see my therapist regularly and And it's, it's, it's hot and heavy, you know, it's deep. And I, it's a lot to process. It's a lot of information. I can feel it though. I can feel myself connecting with who I am more. And that's every step along the way, every phase has been a deeper understanding about who I am, right? I couldn't have just been thrown into it right away because I couldn't have handled it the those shadows and those really dark things about ourselves that we reject I couldn't have handled it and so I had to like ease my way into it and here I am now really peeling back some dark dark layers but it's also okay like I'm not completely falling apart over it
0: Yeah. I think that's the key about slowly but surely peeling those onion layers back, right? Just cut the thing in half and stick your nose straight in the middle of the onion. That is a strong smell. Your eyes will water. Do it slower over the course of time. And I think that's really important as coaches for us to understand, meet the client where they're at, understand that where we know they can get to, where we know they're capable of achieving, maybe something so far away from them. It's like, Back in the day when we had Ponce de Leon sailing across the ocean blue to find the Americas, if we would have told those people one day we're going to be talking about landing on the moon and flying a spaceship to Mars, they'd have been like, you're aliens. We're going to burn you at the stake. Say that to somebody nowadays and like, yeah, we're totally going to go to Mars. In fact, have we thought about Titan yet? So it's almost like we've got to ease people into the the journey of exploring themselves. Because if you try to tell them you know, as a Ponce de Leon that one day we're going to be sending rockets to the moon... Uh, they're they will be so blown away by what you're even trying to say. They might block what you're trying to teach them in that moment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, yeah well, real fast. You mentioned internal family systems. Have you, uh, have you, have you ever studied that? Uh, not in depth. Cause you mentioned family systems and it made me think of the book by Richard Swartz, which is really just parts integration from neuro linguistic programming that he turned into this entire whole new field which is i the if the was internal family systems therapy ifst but yeah when you mentioned that i i have a book about it on my in my audible account and i was like oh my gosh she just said family systems i was like that's so wild and and I, and because i do nlp i know that it comes from neuro linguistic programming, uh parts integration studies that they did back in the late 70s so i just thought that was really interesting how you said you were getting into your family systems and figuring all that out
1: yeah i don't dive into it uh you know, into depth with clients, but we do talk a lot about families, roles and, and somewhat family systems and dynamics because we are who we are because of our childhood and our environment and, you know, our experiences as we get older, but those things need to be looked at, right? We take on so much responsibility and blame, or we don't like ourselves because of the qualities that we have but if we really look at it, what are what did those qualities do for us? They served us in a certain way during our years when we were younger, when we really couldn't protect ourselves, right? So it was our way of protecting ourselves and providing safety for ourselves throughout childhood, even if you had a, a fantastic childhood, right? Or a crappy childhood, whatever that looked like. Um, We all have patterns and things that we developed along the way. So it's extremely important that you don't just look at yourself. You have to look outside yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to look at your family system.
0: Yes, we created resources as children that served us then. Same thinking is not going to get us to the place we want to be when we're in our 30s and 40s. Yeah. Uh, I know I know my listeners are just like, wow, the, the, you're I mean, you're touching on some major points I make throughout the show. Um, I want to. So I call this the aftershock question because I know we're 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 past our time. But I had a feeling that would happen. Um, I call this the aftershock question because it's like, what? No. OK, you're you're right here today doing this episode with me. When we look back. Over all of these years of sobriety and recovery that you have, what is something that you know now you wish you could have gone back to that version of yourself at day one, month one, year one, and instilled in yourself? What's something you know now you wish you'd known then?
1: Ooh, that's a that's a big question. There's two
0: questions. That's the first. There's another one coming. I intentionally don't tell you are coming because I want the raw, Caitlin, whenever I ask.
1: I think trust and that it really will be okay like that's the biggest thing is I've never trusted in the process I always want to try to insert my will and control situations because I don't trust what the outcome is going to be or I'm scared of whatever that outcome is going to be or look like and because of the own fears I have like I don't want to be a failure I don't want to be viewed a certain way so I'll try to like manipulate and control a situation so I don't and so I'm not viewed that way. Right, But if I, when I look back, if I would have just trusted that things would work out the way they are supposed to work out and that I was going to learn all these lessons and I knew what was ahead, like, okay, let's do this.
0: Yes. I love the idea. I talk about trust a lot. That's how you learn to love yourself again, by trusting yourself, by making commitments and following through with them. And if I look back at as an addict, addict Jesse always seemed to land on his feet. Double digit arrests, lots of insanity, calamities, blackouts. And, and people would be like, dude, how do you always land on your feet? I'm like, Well, I bounce down a mountain before I land on my feet, but thank you for the the, the applause. But generally, like I never did anything so heinous that I it couldn't be come back from. And so I do agree with this like trust in the process. It's gonna, you know, a lot of times if somebody be like, you have to ebb and flow back and forth in this career or in your sobriety and recovery, but at year 10 or 15, you're gonna be in the happiest relationship of your life. You're gonna be achieving things that you never in your wildest dreams could have imagined achieving. You're gonna be, you know, helping other people and and blah, 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 blah. But you're gonna have to go through a lot of uncertainty for the first seven years. I'd be like, okay, I'll take the uncertainty of seven years to know that down the line, the certainty is coming. You've actually reopened something in my mind, Caitlin, that says just, just trust in the process. That it, as long as you wake up every single day flexible in your behaviors, but taking action, that things will, you, things will turn out.
1: Oh, it's such a hard thing to do. <laughs> it's a hard thing to trust. It is.
0: It, it is. So now we're going to back it up with the megaphone question. So this is my other one that I, and this is, this is one of my, this is my all time favorite. And I think I learned it from another podcast, but I love, love, love asking this question. In theory, this podcast reaches the entire world. If somebody decided they wanted to find me, they could find me. So in essence, this microphone in front of you right now can reach the entire planet. Imagine that this is the megaphone that reaches every single ear. And right now there is a message that Caitlin wants to share with the rest of the world. What is that message you want them to hear from you?
1: Again, that is, I have lots of things to say, and I always have a million thoughts. So to put that into one,
0: put them in, then say them all, yeah, <laughs> say as many so as you hard. want. We'll go another 30 minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I feel like it's something I'm still always trying to do, right? I think the biggest thing is to honor self. And what I mean by that is, Like for me, I will just physically put my hands on my body, like on my chest when I'm feeling worried or anxious or squirrely or unsure or whatever it is. If I just don't know what to do, I will just put my hands on my body to feel grounded or my feet on the ground and just acknowledge that feeling. Like, I don't actually have to think about it. I don't have to fix it. I don't have to do anything with it, except be right here in this moment with that feeling and just say like, hey, anxiety, what's up? You know, like I hear you. I'm I'm right here with you. I'm connected to it. And it's so extremely powerful because it takes the power away from that emotion because I know. When I feel something, I go right into like problem solving mode, fix it mode or collapse where I'm just like depressed and I feel like I can't make a decision and I'm overwhelmed. And then I I live in that. So the best thing that you can do is just that exercise, right? Just putting your hands on your body and just taking a second. It really does only take a few seconds and just honor that feeling that you're having.
0: I love that. You remind me of... How many times I'll get anxious or stressed out and immediately I seek to solve what I believe the anxiety and stress showed up to alert me to. And oftentimes it's future pacing something that's seven hours, seven days, 17 weeks away. And I'm like, okay, just just breathe into it and calm yourself down because the central nervous system will fire up that fight or flight and it could be something completely made up in the head. It's not, it's just a thought that that created a feeling and it's not even actually attached to a fact or a circumstance of any sort that's, that's actually happening. It's just something the mind wants to just, ah, why are you doing this to me? So thank you for saying that. Cause I think a lot of listeners will be able to feel what you just said as something that they can actually take from this episode and say, okay, let's just, hello, anxiety. How are you today?
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. It just takes the power away, and the narratives are what get us all tangled up.
0: You've uh, been an amazing guest. I this isn't this was the fastest hour before the mic went hot. I was like, yeah, we we'll we keep it around forty five minutes or so. We got heavy hitting straight into the vulnerability, straight into the awesome right out the gate. And I told I you like- I was
1: ready for it.
0: <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> uh, there has been an ebb and flow of emotion and excitement and, and and deep reflection that has occurred here. You help people, just like my listeners, like your listeners, uh, step into self-worth, step into self-confidence, reaffirm that esteem that you, you desire for them to feel. I know you came here with a gift to offer them. Let's talk about that before we get you out of here, because I really want them to, to know how to reach out to you and continue this conversation if they feel compelled to.
1: Yeah. So I have a free guide that is a five-day challenge to decrease overthinking. So it it walks you through, you could do it. It doesn't have to be exactly five days. You can spread it out however you want. And that pop-up is on my website, www.elevateyourlifecoachingschool.com. So as soon as you go on there, it'll pop right up or you can put it in the show notes, Jesse, I will send that over to you. And uh, yeah, it's just a little guide, some questions, some reading some audio to guide you through. If you're an overthinker or struggling with decision-making, then that guide is, is perfect for that.
0: That's awesome. I will make sure I will absolutely put that in the show notes. In fact, um, I will go in and I will actually sign up for it and I will do it. And then I'll be able to come back and tell everybody on the show what it was like to uh, go through that. Cause overthinking and me are best buds. Yeah. We're yeah. best and- buds. We are best buds. Uh, We've talked about some amazing things on this. In fact, You've got me thinking about the Inside Out Revolution, that I, uh, I, a book I've read. I'm currently reading this one. And by, by reading, I mean audibling. Uh, what to say when you talk to yourself, and in, Inside Outside uh, Revolution. I just think those are great books about internal self talk and where we get those voices in our head that are talking to us. I think that's what you discussed when you brought up the family systems. Uh, we've covered so many things. Is there, a, a, you know, we've even gone over the aftershock, we've gotten the megaphone. Uh, is there any final words, something that you'd like to maybe? we didn't cover something I didn't ask that you'd just like the audience to know before we get out of here.
1: Uh, no, I think that we actually covered a lot of ground today. And, you know, if anyone's interested in working with me or just wants to find my my content and my material, I'm on Instagram at Caitlin.englert.coaching and I love to connect, you know, whether you want to be a client or not, I just like connecting with people. So just feel free to to reach out and, and have a chat.
0: Yes. Feel free to reach out, have a chat, everybody. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you, Caitlin. I can't wait to get this up. I mean, I'm pumped for everybody to hear what you had to say. This has been fantastic. I can't wait to be on your show. Um, As always, my friends, the power of positivity release and flow, inclusivity over exclusivity. You guys realize I'm so excited about this episode that I actually messed up my own outro. I want you to notice that I, that, I, that I switched the placement of inclusivity and the power positive energy quote. I just want y'all to notice that that's how excited I am right now that I can't even get my brain to slow down enough to spit out my own outro. So thank you, Caitlin, for being just one of the most pleasant guests I've had on the show in so long.
1: Thanks, Jesse. Thank I you. really appreciate it.
0: All right, everybody, let's get the outro correct this time. Inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the best day of our lives when we wake up sober. Shout out to sunshine. Glow on. We will see you next week. Bye-bye.